Welcome to Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Welcome, everyone. And today, we're pleased to be talking with our friend Mark Yagi, Chief Executive Officer of the Waterkeeper Alliance, the world's largest nonprofit organization focused on the protection and preservation of clean water. With over 300 local boat-based keepers now in 47 countries, with scientists, litigators, and lawsuits, Waterkeeper's been at the forefront of a global citizen's battle to protect our waters, be they fresh, salty, or brackish. Mark has spent more than two decades working for the organization, going back to its headwaters group, the Hudson River Keeper, where he worked to protect the Catskills and upstate watershed that provides New York City's drinking water. But before we work our way into those depths, let me ask you, Mark, what was your early experience with the ocean or other wild body of water? First of all, hi, David and Vicki. It's such a pleasure to speak with you. You guys are doing such amazing work, and I'm honored to be here with you. You know, my deep connection to water, I think probably like a lot of us in this space, started as a kid. And I grew up in the Susquehanna River watershed in Pennsylvania, so I was landlocked. Although I'd probably bet that I might have been the only kid in my town that was regularly devouring surfing magazines. I always had an obsession with water and the ocean. And, you know, despite being landlocked, my world was a water world. I could step outside my back door and walk for miles. Uh, When I was a boy, I had a golden retriever named Ben. And Ben swam and fished with me in creeks, rivers, ponds, and lakes from you know, April to October, at least we were there after school on weekends every day in the summer. It was, you know, being in on and around water was freedom and happiness. And we also made frequent trips as a family to my aunt's cabin on a river. And I would go there and again, swim, skip rocks, fish. It's that's where it all began. And, you know, we had some trips to the beach, but I, I really started spending a lot more time around salt water after I moved to New York 30 years ago. I was just out swimming the Atlantic a few days ago and, uh, we'll be fishing in Long Island Sound this weekend. So as a family, we just love to get out in the salt water as much as we can. Fresh water, too. Those are my natal waters, New York. And most people don't appreciate 80% of the cities off the continental mainland, uh, surrounded by rivers and the New York Bight. And um, so what brought you to New York? Uh, was that where you got your law degree or what? It is where I got my law degree. It, you know, when I well, I was enjoying that whole water experience as a kid, and I kind of assumed that everyone was every everybody else shared those same experiences and as i got a little bit older and learned more and realized that not everybody can go down to their local waterway and jump in and have a swim or get a cool glass of drinking water without fear you know with it, with it being free of toxic chemicals and just seemed like a really big injustice and i i geared towards going for environmental law and so that's how ultimately i ended up at waterkeeper alliance I got the start of the waterkeeper movement really in the 1990s when I was a law student at Pace Law, which is now the Elizabeth Haupt School of Law. Uh, they have an environmental litigation clinic. And when I was there, Hudson Riverkeeper was the primary client. And so every student, when you come in, I was a second year student when I started, you're handed four or five lawsuits and uh, told to go ahead and 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 win these. And uh, you know, those could, those lawsuits could be at any stage from investigation to being in court to a settlement negotiation. And it was a really pivotal learning and life experience. And I was, I was really inspired by the grassroots model that Hudson Riverkeeper had made. And um, at that time, it was only happening, that model was only happening on a few waterways around the United States. And so after law school, I, I went to, to had a couple of great years at the Environmental Law Institute and then was offered a role running Hudson River Keepers program to protect New York City's drinking water supply, as you mentioned earlier. 
So the Waterkeeper has a really fascinating history. And um, maybe you could take us back to before New York and the harbors were um, were back when they were fresh and clean and you could fish them and there was lots of oysters. And then we had all of these terrible things happen, whether or not it was um, oil in the rivers or paints from cars. But tell us that story so we can get a vision of what New York was like prior to and then what initiated the um, the activism of people to make it better. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was listening to your episode uh, that you recently had when you had uh, Chad, our friend over at, at Surfrider on. And his organizational origin story had, you know, struck a similar chord with me because he was talking about surfers getting fed up being out swimming and or surfing in sewage and, and other pollutants. And you know, it was a similar thing because this was fishermen being fed up and and standing up and taking action. You know, basically, as you as you mentioned, Vicky, you know, in the in the 1800s, a lot of people don't know this, but New York City was the oyster capital of the world. Um, there were like 250 square miles of oyster beds, and they were. Uh, considered to be some of the best in the world that people were eating like a million oysters a day. You buy them off of carts in the street, like you do hot dogs today. But unfortunately we didn't treat our natural resources properly. There was all the raw sewage going into the Harbor and we weren't putting the shells back in the Harbor and all sorts of other problems. And uh, before long in the 1920s, the city had to uh, shut down the oyster beds. And I always think about that as kind of symboling the decline of the New York Harbor and the Hudson River, because it just got worse through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And by the 1960s, the river was nearly dead. And it was the, the you know, the laughing stock of late night TV. It was uh, people would say, you know, we don't go near the river. We would never go near the river. And uh, there were a group of blue collar recreational commercial fishermen, though, that had been fishing it for generations. And it was a, it had been historical, a, a really rich historical fishing past. And a lot of them came back from some of the wars. A lot of them were Marines and, and other armed services. And they came back and found that this river that they had learned their, their trade on and they had such a passion for was nearly dead. And they they organized and got together in 1966 in a veteran of foreign wars hall. And, you know, some of them actually said, you know, they, they knew there was a problem with the river, but they didn't know how to fix it. And and they were they were understandably upset and enraged. Some of them said, well, we should stick a mattress up the pipe of Penn Central Railroad because it was discharging millions of gallons of oil into the river. It was blackening the beaches and making the fish taste like diesel fuel. And so, uh, and other ones said, oh, we should light a match to the oil and, and blow the place up and all these other things. But one of them, um, one of our original founders, Bob Boyle, who had been an outdoor editor of Sports Illustrated, had done some research and found the, the the Rivers and Harbors Act from the 1800s, which was a navigational statute. And he realized that a lot of the pollution happening on the Hudson was a violation of that act. And so he stood up in the middle of that meeting and he said, we shouldn't be breaking the law. We should be enforcing the law. And he got those fishermen to galvanize around his idea of going out and patrolling the river, looking for pollution problems and holding the the polluters accountable for cleaning up their mess and you know they started hudson riverkeeper to do that work and and today the you know the hudson's teeming with life again and people are now flocking to the river instead of fleeing from it like they were before and how did uh, the revival of the hudson with the hudson riverkeeper and uh, all those efforts evolve into the uh national and now global waterkeeper alliance yeah, you know, it, it progressed over time. And I, I always like to think one of the pivotal moments was when John Crone and the first full-time Hudson Riverkeeper 
caught Exxon Mobil in um, in the river discharging uh, petrochemicals from the hull of its ship. Um, and it, after they did some research, they had realized that they had been Exxon had been coming up from Aruba and offloading its product in the Jer- Jersey ports, and then coming up into the Hudson, discharging what was left over, so they could go up past the salt line fill their tanker up with fresh water to take back to fill up the swimming pools and things in, you know, water deprived Aruba. And that case garnered a lot of media attention. And, and I think that drew that media attention, drew people to say, you know, I want to do that on my waterway. We want to protect our local community. And that's when we started seeing more groups get started. And, and it just sort of piled on after that. What was really groundbreaking though, was the clean water act of 1972 because it created a citizen suit provision and, you know, any one of us can bring a, a polluter to justice under the Clean Water Act if government's not going to do its job. And so it was uh, almost like, um, you know, we haven't seen a lot of really great progress out of Congress in a long time. But in 1972, it was almost like they had a little crystal ball and could could foresee Citizens United and and the sort of corruption of agencies uh, uh, you know, in dealing with polluters. I think after the Hudson River Keeper, 1999, when Waterkeeper Alliance was founded, its two principles were uh, have a boat and be willing to sue polluters. Um, is that sort of the same principle today? Generally, we have um, quality standards. You know, everything's very much grassroots and bottoms up with the organization. But for trademark protection and, and branding, we have licensing standards that the groups all agree to. And even that's bottoms up because they created them. Um, but they do require you to have a patrol vessel and to be willing to advocate for enforcement of environmental laws using litigation where appropriate and possible. It's a little more complicated when you move into a lot of other countries where you may not have that same ability to bring litigation, but you can use other mechanisms to try to ensure that the law is enforced. So in the realm of water politics, whether or not it's freshwater politics or ocean politics, um, we know Waterkeeper has had numerous, numerous challenges, um, but I'm really curious about what some of the most intense challenges and successes that you have seen since you've been there. I'd like to think about some of the seminal or, or some of the really important cases I've seen, especially ones that have been brought by our Waterkeeper organizations. You know, in Atlanta in the 1990s, our Chattahoochee Riverkeeper filed a Clean Water Act lawsuit against the city to ultimately to force officials to reduce thousands of spills of untreated sewage because they hadn't been repairing or upgrading their aging infrastructure. And it had been long, you know, long neglected. They settled that case in 1997 and it led to $2 billion worth of investment into overhauling the city's storm and sewer systems. And, and what was the city? Atlanta. And following that lawsuit, the average E. coli levels in the river were 80% lower than what they had been before. And there's other ones, you know, there's a lot of other examples out in California where y'all are, um, you know, San Diego Coast Keeper. Well, I'll say where David is at the moment. San Diego Coast Keeper negotiated a Clean Water Act settlement with the city to secure a massive wastewater recycling project. And that will significantly reduce pollution, polluted discharges to the ocean and also providing about up to about 50 percent of the city's potable water supply. And that's something around uh, last, I believe it was about 83 million gallons per day through recycling. And, you know, you're well familiar, I'm sure, of the the water, the freshwater drinking water challenges in, in the West. And so uh, I think that's a really important step that was taken there. 
you know, there have been so many. Our waterkeeper in Charleston, our Charleston waterkeeper, not too long ago, I think it was 2020, 2020 or 21, they were finding plastic pellets or nurdles um, throughout their local waterways and beaches. And they were able to use the Clean Water Act against a resin packaging company to get a settlement with them that included improved containment measures to prevent future spills, as well as the creation of a million dollar fund to benefit the quality and health of Charleston Harbor. Uh, there's just an abundance of, you know, different inspiring stories that keep me going in, in all of these different locations. And those are just in the U.S. You can go outside the U.S. and there's some really amazing stories and, and victories out there and, and under oftentimes much more challenging circumstances. In 2006, I just left Hudson Riverkeeper to go to work at Waterkeeper Alliance. And my boss, he asked me if I wanted to go to Senegal because there was a group that wanted to start a waterkeeper there. So I went over there and it was the... You know, it was a it was a soccer club. It was a football club. the The community was was about forty thousand people. Han Bay, it's a, just outside the capital city of Dakar. Forty thousand people with no sanitation service, myriad diseases. The community kind of broken up by football clubs, and this one football club was called ASC Iraq, and they had been active on social issues in the community, teaching about hygiene, HIV, AIDS, and other issues. And they really wanted to restore their bay to its former glory, but they weren't having success. One of the villages had moved to Toronto and he learned about our waterkeepers up in Canada. And when he went back to visit the village, he said, maybe we should start a waterkeeper to try to fix our bay. That's how I ended up there. And it was the most polluted place I had been to at the time and still is in, in the top two, probably. So if I'm looking out at the bay, there's on the right side of me, there's a 10 foot wide, you know, 20 feet deep open canal of raw sewage coming from the capital city of Dakar, going right next to the villagers' homes, through the fish market, into the bay. There's a pipe from a Libyan oil facility discharging petrochemicals right underneath the village chief's home into the bay. And a, a meat rendering plant discharging not this noxious brown liquid into the bay. And then, of course, there's no sanitation service. So when everyone's done cooking and cleaning, everything goes down and put on the beach and is dumped on the beach. And so the beach was just covered with food waste, household waste, algae and flies, and it smelled horrible. And I spent some, you know, a, a week with these guys and was really inspired by them. But I said, you know, I don't really know how we're, I, I'm, I'm still not, I'm not sure how we're going to add value to you because at this point we don't have any water keepers in Africa. I don't have anybody who speaks Wolof or French on my team. And I'm just not, I, I want to make sure that we can help. We can be of value and, and support you. And their leader and Becke said, look, you, you guys have an international brand that'll give us credibility. He said this through an interpreter. He said, I'm going to learn English and I'm going to go to all of your conferences and your summits. And I'm going to learn from the, vet, the other people in the network of, of how, what they've done in their community. I'm going to come back and do that here. Time went by. I'll, I'll, I'll make this long story short. And that was 2006, but 2014, I happened to be in Nepal working with some groups there. And when I opened up my laptop at night, I saw this article about how Han Baykeeper had been instrumental in convincing the government of Senegal and three European institutions to commit $68 million to clean up Han Bay. And that now has turned into a $130 million cleanup project that includes 17 local towns and cities. And when it's done, it'll be the largest clean water project in all of Senegal. And it'll impact nearly half a million Senegalese citizens. And it all started from a football club that wanted to clean up its bay. You know, the work with the groups outside the U.S. can be incredibly inspiring and also really challenging because you've got different languages, different cultures, and also different legal and political frameworks. And on top of that, we've got to be very careful, too, because 
depending on the country, the threats to personal safety can be considerably more widespread and, and pervasive than here in the United States. The U.S. has laws, but they're not always uh, enforced. And now we have a Supreme Court that just gutted the wetland provisions of the Clean Water Act, which is very basic to uh, a lot of what you do. Um, how's that going to impact uh, waterkeepers and their specific cases where local waterkeepers have to deal with this uh, new crackdown? Yeah, when we're still navigating that, it's a it's a really disastrous decision from the Supreme Court. You know, they dramatically curtailed the scope of the waters protected by the Clean Water Act, essentially saying, you know, wetlands are not protected under the act unless there is a direct surface connection between the the wetland and a navigable, uh, a relatively permanent navigable water body. And it's immediately resulted in, in the loss of federal protection for looking at about roughly half the wetlands acreage in the United States. And, you know, after that decision, our advocacy team really parsed through it and and they hosted a roundtable with with our waterkeepers to to get a deep do deep dive into the, the the case and its implications and options. And the the ideal solution is is something that we need anyways, which is to amend the Clean Water Act to really remove references to navigability and broadly redefine what is a water in the United States. Something that's science based. You know, clearly the Supreme Court wasn't made basing anything on science, and. You know, we've been working with partners on a proposed bill, but given the realities of Congress right now, it might not be uh, something that's going to happen anytime soon, but we plan to be ready for it. In the meantime, you know, the best immediate strategy is to kind of work with some of the groups on state legislation and state regulations. But even then you run into places, I think, in like in North Carolina, where they set it so that they can't they're not going to do anything that's more stringent than what's covered federally. So, you know, that's going to be hard to figure out how to how to solve that. Water quality, climate change, sea level rise, pollution, it's all coming more so in a different framework. So different strategies are will be necessary. So how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm glad you brought I mean, I'm glad you made that point because I think it, I think there's a growing awareness with people that climate change is a water issue or climate change is a water risk issue, even. And you know, if you ask people how you know climate change impacts manifest themselves they're going to say things like you said sea level rise flooding drought ocean acidification all of those things are water we don't have the tools here in the us to effectively address them you know we we know what needs to be done but there aren't there aren't a lot of legal tools and they seem to keep eroding them from time <laughs> from time to time right and so it's a real challenge, but it, it factors into, we have three advocacy campaigns and all three of them touch on, you know, have a climate aspect to them. One of the, the primary ones being climate and safe energy, which is when we're dealing with issues around offshore drilling and, you know, keeping fossil fuels in the ground, uh, whether it's any part, any part of the fossil fuel life cycle, which is bad for waters and climate, right? From, from extraction to transportation to, uh, you know, combustion and disposal. And so trying to you know crack at them through those the through that campaign is one of the big areas we work. And what are your two other campaigns? Pure Farms, Pure Waters, which deals with the impact from industrial agriculture and works to promote more sustainable agricultural practices. And then Clean Water Defense, which is really focused more on fortifying, defending, and enforcing clean water laws and policies. Right now there are about 320 waterkeepers in 47 countries. On six continents, they're patrolling and protecting a little under 3 million square miles of watershed. 
And to become a waterkeeper, it's important to have a passion for your waterway, have be wanting to be a, a be out, be willing to be out there and patrol and be a spokesperson and speak up for, be the eyes, ears, and voice of that waterway and the community that relies on it for swimming or drinking or fishing, and uh, everything else. We'll work with you on the on the on the whole proposal process. So now, Waterkeeper was founded in 1999 by Bobby Kennedy Jr. and uh, it was a very good environmental attorney. Uh, in, in building the organization. Today, he's running for president as a Democrat, kind of controversial figure. What's uh, Bobby's relationship to Waterkeeper today? Bobby's no longer uh, president of Waterkeeper Alliance, and he stepped down in 2020. He's very supportive of us, and he was instrumental you know, in both being a founder of Waterkeeper Alliance, but also he was really instrumental in what those fishermen did in terms of turning the Hudson from a nearly dead river into an icon of ecosystem revitalization and also then inspiring advocates all over the globe to protect their waterway and to hold polluters accountable. I know locally, I live no longer in San Diego in Richmond, California, which is a predominantly low-income community of color. And our San Francisco Baykeeper has been a strong ally and supporter, both in campaigns against the Chevron refinery pollution here and also to protect our uh, last natural headland, Point Melati, which only makes sense because water keepers follow water pollution to the source. They usually find that source is uh, adjacent to a low-income community of color because that's where the polluters could most easily uh, locate themselves in the past. And too often in the present, it still seems that our victories take 20 years to achieve and bad ideas get permitted immediately. Oh yeah, it's you know it's it's we have the saying of right money, power, and influence dictates who gets the short end of the stick on environmental pollution, and so we've got to we're going to help get more power and influence to these communities. And when I was at Hudson Riverkeeper one time, we sued New York City because they wouldn't respond to a freedom of information request of where the city's water is distributed because the water in the Catskills is the cleaner water. It's slightly cleaner water as opposed to on the east of the Hudson where you have Westchester County, Putnam County that have a lot of development sewage treatment plants. And um, they won't turn them over. So we took them, we took them to court and on the court steps, they finally turned them over before they had to go into court. And you could see the distribution map. All the good water was going to all the wealthy white communities, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, all the water coming from more than heavily developed areas, Harlem, Spanish Harlem, Lower East Side, et cetera. It's, it's, it's everywhere. As executive director of this organization, do you get to go visit your keepers and get on the water in all these beautiful rivers, estuaries, and oceans uh, often? A pretty decent amount. Yeah. I actually just returned from Sweden and I was in, I've been to Stockholm before a bunch and a little bit further north, but we were up in the Arctic Circle this time. And that was really a really cool experience, including having some, uh, getting a little salmon and grayling fishing in. Oh, that sounds nice. Well, looking ahead, what are some of your key priorities and goals in the next couple of years that you'd like to see accomplished? On the climate and safe energy part, there's a real focus over the next for the foreseeable future on offshore drilling. And this is I can bring this back to a story that I told because we talked about how the really, to me, inspiring story of Han Baykeeper and that success they had in a classic David and Goliath type story, right? And cleaning up their community's precious resource in Senegal. In Senegal. And they accomplished all that. And now they're facing a major threat to their waterway and our climate in the form of offshore fossil fuel drilling. And it's a big one too. It's not it's not anything small. It includes some oil majors like BP, Total, Woodside Energy. And you're talking about they're estimating 
what could be a billion barrels of oil with a B and 40 trillion cubic feet of gas. And you all know that's inconsistent with the pathway needed to, to, to limit us to 1.5 and degrees Celsius and, and that we need to keep fossil fuels on the ground. But in addition to concerns about climate change, the offshore oil production poses a threat to one of Senegal's most valuable assets, which is its fisheries. And the fishing sector in Senegal is responsible for, uh, it employs 17% of the country's workforce. And it also provides more than 40% of the nation's animal protein. And so now we're working to get to, together to fight back against that. And we've got a lot of great partners over in Senegal as well as outside of Senegal. And, you know, we've developed a playbook based on work we're doing in the Bahamas on the same thing with offshore drilling. So the Bahamas and Senegal's off offshore drilling are going to be a focus for us for the foreseeable future. Also would say uh, PFAS or, or per and polyfluoral alkyl, alkyl substances, which is something that we've been working on for a number of years now. They're a class of more than 9,000 man-made chemicals that were actually invented by accident in the 1930s. And, but they, this accident turned out to be very useful because PFAS um, or PF, PFAS, they repel water, oil, and grease. And so now we have them everywhere, right? They're used to make waterproof jackets, fast food wrappers, carpets, nonstick cookware, pizza boxes, and so forth. And through the, the manufacture and use and disposal of those products, chemicals have ended up in our waterways everywhere. And the problem is they were, they were, they've been nicknamed forever chemicals because they take more than a thousand years to degrade. They're increasingly linked to certain types of cancer, liver and kidney disease, uh, immunological problems, reproductive and developmental harm. And now they're in our waterways, they're in our fish. And for most all of us, all of your listeners, all of us here on this, uh, on this podcast, they're in our blood. So persistent pollutants, Offshore oil, which is also a problem in the U.S., thanks to Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who required it as part of our IRA climate bill, and uh, just the many other forms of, of pollution, and now climate is a threat to uh, healthy and clean waters. So you got some work still set out for you. Don't forget plastics. <laughs> as an understatement, my goodness, I know when you think about all of the challenges we have, freshwater, ocean estuaries, yes, we are very glad that we have so many fantastic water keepers. And with that, Mark, we'd like to thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. We wish you lots of luck with all of your challenges, and we will be following up. So have a fantastic day, week, and um, enjoy your wonderful job. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really grateful to for you having me on, for inspiring and educating your listeners, and, and really Really glad to, glad to be here with you both. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier